The scripture comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there will be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leopard, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Then she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. For then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There it is. <laughs> That was me. Somehow it gets pulled out. It's a provocative portion of Scripture in some ways. We're not going to get into that today. I hope. <laughs> At least I don't, I don't hope I provoke you the other way. Before we do that, I just wanted to make mention this, this hymn that we sang before the Scripture reading, All Things Bright and Beautiful. Mid-19th century, mid-1800s, and the big thing that was happening in churches there was the start of Sabbath school slash Sunday school. reason was the children weren't being educated, and part of it was to help them to learn how to read, but most of it was to introduce them to Jesus and the poor, the kids that were on the street and the poor kids that were working in, 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 in factories and all of that. They reached out to them, and this is a specific Sunday school time, song from that time. And now it's uh, forever one of our hymns in the hymns of the church, and uh, we should remember these things and the truths about God made everything well, and all these bright and wonderful things are from the Lord, and all good, all good in so many ways. Well, we are, um, let me begin it this way. The history of the church, the history of Christian and believers, has not always been rosy. And the reality is, all along, there have always been times when we, the church, we Christians, have been wrong, simply wrong. And how we can be wrong because we are still 
humans, even though God has redeemed us, even though we are born again, even though we're part of the new creation, we still have this capacity to get things wrong. The churches have done it, and even from the time of the earliest churches when they formed into uh, the various, like the Eastern Orthodox and the the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and then they divided, each of those codified things, and, and in some ways they got it wrong, and then they got it wrong and wrong, and they continue that. We know that because way back when, when Martin Luther shows up, he, he, he confronts the wrong. And then we have a Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation, and then the Protestant churches and associations, they are formed. And yet, even within them, and we're fighting over it right now within the denomination that we know as United Methodists, the churches get it wrong. They get what Christianity is wrong. And it's not just the churches, the groups. Individually, and here part of our American experience because we are in the forefront of this with our American individuality. Each of us has our own theological persuasion, beliefs, emphases. Each of us have our own practices, church, Christian practices, all of them. And the reality is sometimes we just get it wrong. Each of us, every one of us, get it wrong. Part of Jesus discipling us and the ongoing efforts he makes in discipling addresses this issue because we're going along and we're thinking we're doing pretty good, pretty good, and then Jesus opens up a new vision to us, kind of like this word that I got here this morning, and, and what God is doing is he's confronting the things that are wrong in our lives. I can testify to you. I've been there, bringing a confrontation, saying, Walter, that's wrong, and then maybe getting me to the place of conviction. That's the next step. That's where he moves us, the confrontation to conviction, where I agree with God, and you don't know how hard it is for me sometimes to agree with God. I know it's easy for you, but for me, sometimes it's just hard to agree with God. But that's what conviction is. You're right. You're right. I've got to do something about it. But all of us face this as disciples, as individuals. Now, you know you're facing it because there are some who are hearing. I doubt that if they're here, but they may be watching on, on the live stream. You, know, you may be sitting there going, well, I'm not wrong. <laughs> And if, that's, if that even remotely crossed your mind, you might want to consider that might be an indicator, one of these alarms that God's sending off, because so often we do get it wrong. We get it wrong, and God in his loving patience, whatever. So, now why all that? Well, because this passage of Scripture, by the way, you will note that it said Matthew 26, Boy, Walter's rocketing through these last chapters of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, we're there. First 16 verses of Matthew 26. And in our study of this, I include this with what we've been looking at for the last few months, which is this last, the overall is the last week of Jesus' life here before his death and resurrection. That last week, we call it Holy Week. Begins with Palm Sunday. And so the first half of this 
the thing, if you've noticed in your bulletin, you've probably seen a, t- a kind of a, a, a title of the series above the title of the sermon, The Righteous and the Wrong, The Righteous and the Wrong. And all through this, we have been looking at this the, over the months about this week. The righteous, there's only one righteous, and it's Jesus. The wrong is everybody else around him. And this last passage of that portion of the Scripture talks about that and talks about wherever everybody is going into the last few days and hours of Jesus' life. That's where we're going. We call that the passion of Christ. So now we're going from the first half of the last week to the second half. And in Matthew's Gospel, we have 16 verses that kind of set the stage. You know that's true because here's the first, here's the first verse. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, well, what's that referring to? Matthew 24 and 25, the end times and all of that. And they've been on this roller coaster about what the end times is going to be like and all of us, and he's been very strong with them and all that. But what he says then when he's finished that, he's on the Mount of Olives, probably before he goes to the house of, of Simon the leper, which is on the other side, Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethany, okay? It's a, real easy. It's just geography. And Jesus finished all these things. He says to them, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Talk about a wet blanket. Talk about a reset. Here we are talking about the exciting end times and what we, you know, all that's going to happen and who's going to be doing what. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes back and he refocuses, he resets. And it's not a happy thought. He will be handed over to be crucified. Now, in this passage, there are really four little accounts. And all four accounts have brief not complete, but brief parts of the conversation. And the first account is Jesus resetting the disciples, getting them back. We're going to look at this passage to see what is wrong here. Two weeks from now, when we come back, next week will be communion, especially those online and broadcast next Sunday, February whatever, I think it's seven, the, the, we will be serving communion, so prepare for that. But then the Sunday after, we're going to come back and look at this very same passage that we're going to look at what's wrong today, and we're going to be looking at that moment, what is right. So this is the what's wrong, okay? And we're going to be talking about what's wrong. We're going to reduce it to two groups of people. His most, his closest beloved disciples, the good guys, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, his sworn enemies, his nemesis, the chief priests, the elders, the rulers. First conversation, first part of a conversation is, Son of Man is going to be handed over to crucif- be crucified. 
Then the scene shifts dramatically, quickly, and if you don't watch it, you go, what's, what's going on? But from the Mount of Olives, it switches back into Jerusalem, and you're seeing the, the, the palace, the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, and the elders and the chief priests are gathered around, and they're scheming, they're conspiring, they're colluding together to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. It's a conspiracy to commit murder. And we hear part of that conversation. But not during the festival, they said. There may be a riot among the people. Now, earlier we saw this fear that the chief priests and the, people and the, and the elders had about the people because they're supporting him. This one is a little bit, a little bit more illustrative. What's the problem with the people rioting? Well, the problem with the people rioting is Rome, the Romans. Because if the people riot, who's going to crush the riot? Who's going to crush even those who were the instigators of the riot in terms of what they did? They don't need any more involvement from Rome in Israel at the time. And so their fear is this fear of not just the riot, not just the people, but also of Rome, getting Rome involved in our affairs. And so that's what's happening. The third, the third account is a longer account. It's about Jesus in Bethany, home of Simon the leper. We do not know who he is. We suspect that he's one of the lepers that he's healed before. That's just a suspicion, but we don't know that. The woman comes in with this alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, and she pours it on his head as he's reclining at the table. And now the disciples are outraged. And we have a little bit more of the conversation here. Why this waste, they asked. Why? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. What are we about anyway? How dare they? How dare she? <laughs> and Jesus, hearing this, just says, wait, wait a minute. Why, why? Why are you bothering this woman? Why are you laying this on her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. What? Why isn't he taking up the banner? Why isn't he taking up their banner? Because it's not his banner. Remember, he's already said in verses 1 and 2, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. That's what's his banner on. And he's moving towards that, not running away from that. And he's, and he's trying to refocus them on this the poor you have with you all the time, if you want to go out and feed them, help the poor and give them the money, you're going to have opportunity. But this moment, she has done a beautiful thing for me, preparing me for burial. And then the promise, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has been done also will be told in memory of her. We have it in Matthew's gospel. Now, there's more there, and, and it, it's worth studying. I'm going to leave it to you to do. I'm going to just jump on this. The last part of a conversation we have now is after this moment with the disciples and the woman and the alabaster jar and all of that. And believe me, there's more than a suspicion of connection here. 
there's really an inference. There is, there is the implied there, and you can look at it. This is, this, the one goes to the other. One moves to the other. It's triggered by this moment where Judas makes a decision, makes a choice. Triggered by this event. It's a little bit more explicit in John's gospel about this. Uh, and so you can look at it. I think it's in John 12. But when you look at that, you'll see that, well, that rigor triggered, and they're very, very open about that. But now at this point, Judas goes off, and he meets with the chief priest and sets up for the betrayal. What do you give me, willing to give me, if I deliver him over to you? So they count out to him the 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) Now what's wrong here? What's wrong? Well, the first thing that's wrong (laughs) are these sworn enemies, these chief priests, these elders, the ruling class, those who are in power. Now, yes, they're under the foot, they're under the hand of Rome. Okay, that's all going there, and they're going to use that. But these folks on the day-to-day, on the political and religious front, these are the ones who call the shots. These are the ones who tell you how to dress, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. They have immense power. Now, these sworn enemies, the Gospels have already told us, have investigated this. Now, they've investigated in multiple ways. They've sent spies. They've gone themselves. They have witnessed. They have witnessed miracles. They have heard his teaching. They have verified and substantiated everything that people have said about Jesus. They have tried to trip him up. They've done all of it. They've been very frustrated about this, even though the evidence couldn't be clearer that Jesus is the Son of God. But they're not going to go there. Stubbornly, they reject that. They are unwilling to give up to repent of their beliefs, of their position and their power. That's what they do. They are committed to destroying him. Committed to it. You understand that? Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Matthew 21, they sought to arrest him. And now here, in Ma- and then in Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him. And now, no holds barred. They're going to have him killed. They're going to arrest him. They're going to have him killed. Couldn't be more wrong. Couldn't be more wrong in understanding who he was and what he was doing. And why he was there. The people got it. But these highfalutin, hoity-toity, isn't that a great phrase? These hoity-toity people in power, they just, they just couldn't break out of there. They just, they, it's not they couldn't, they wouldn't. They wouldn't even entertain it. They wouldn't even confront their own thing. And it's so wrong. And that's the, that's the setup of the enemies. But it doesn't end there. In this passage, it also tells us how wrong 
his disciples are, his closest friends, his beloved disciples, including, especially including the twelve. As far as we know, there's these, these, these men and the women with them for the last almost three years have walked with him daily, have been with him, have, have listened to his teaching, have eaten with him, with, slept with him, have seen various things, have been part of the miracles, have been sent out to do miracles, all of this. They are the witnesses of the most extraordinary moment in all of history, with the exception of creation, none of us was around there. I don't see any of you old enough to have been around there. I know Merv thinks he's old and he feels he's old enough there, but it's, it, just, it just didn't happen. This most extraordinary time of a teaching, of miracles. John, one of those disciples that we're talking about, later in his life writes about this. He says, what was from the beginning? What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. It's these folk, these folk that we look back on, wow, these super apostles, these folk that sometimes we probably look back with envy. I wish I had been there, wish I'd been walking with them and talking with them. But here in this moment, between that first half of the week, hearing amazing teaching, going through all of this, And then Jesus, hearing out of Jesus' own mouth again about he's going to be crucified, and they can't face it. They're more than uncomfortable with this. They're avoiding this. Whatever Jesus is trying to say, they're actually trying to, in many ways, hinder this from going on. And, you know, in their own heart and mind, it won't happen. We won't let it happen. We won't let it happen. That's why when a woman comes into the meal and anoints Jesus' head and they have an excuse, that's why they are so distracted by this that they're often now, they're outraged. It's like they're on a different planet. It's like they're in a different universe. In spite of everything that Jesus has done, they're missing the plain reality. And they got it wrong. Now, we know what's going to happen, right? We're not there yet, quite, but we're in a couple days here. Maybe, maybe a couple months for us to get through this. But anyway, but these 12, especially the 12, all of them, in one way or another, will abandon Jesus. Couldn't be more wrong. They're thinking they're the most loyal, they're the most loving, and they're going to abandon him. One of them is going to deny that he even knew him three times. And one of them is going to betray him. If you're an outsider looking at this 
passage here, if you're an outsider looking at up to the time of Jesus' crucifixion, not jumping into the resurrection, but at this time, you would be perfectly right to think that Jesus failed with the disciples. Absolutely failed. These 12 and all the rest of them, they're not prepared to carry out a movement if he dies and to carry this thing on. They're not there. We'll come back to that in two weeks to understand why Jesus never felt like he failed. Because all evidence to the contrary, they were so wrong, Jesus didn't get it right. As you're looking at it as an outsider. Their outrage is just amazing. They have an idea of what they should be doing, and so now that it's not happening and we have this blatant example of it, we're going we're gonna to rant and rave and all of it, and they do. Now, the connection here, the discomfort, yes, Judas would have been uncomfortable. Avoiding it, yes, Judas would have been avoiding it. And now this outrage, and this is what we've said all along, and again said explicitly in John chapter 12. Judas, this triggers him into doing his own thing. It's interesting, you've all heard, those of you who've come through the 1960s, the great Andrew Lloyd Webber, his uh, Jesus Christ superstar, and uh, all of that amazing thing. And, you know, part of that, the storyline that he used for that is this tension between Jesus and Judas, Jesus and Judas. And you can't miss the irony that in that particular thing, and it's one of the reasons why I don't recommend it, Having listened it for, to it for hours, I can, still, I can still sing you the songs if I wanted. But having done that, come back to it and say, because what they, what they did in the 60s and what other people have done is these two different visions of what was going on. And Jesus doesn't always come out as the Messiah, as the superstar. Judas has a point. <laughs> That's not the gospel. In the Gospels, Judas is a thief and a betrayer and couldn't get it by his own brokenness. So wrong as they're going into these last days when Jesus is heading so specifically to carry out the Father's will which will bring him to the cross, bring him to death, bring him to be buried as we said together this morning. Apostles' Creed, crucified and buried. Get to that point. Half of the world, I divided them two. The chief priests and the elders, the rulers, are out to kill him, conspiring to commit murder, to, to get him destroyed. The other half are not walking with him. They can't. They're paralyzed with whatever fears and nightmares are coming up to them. They can't do it. These superstar disciples. But see, that's what connects with me. That's what really connects with me. 
the disciples. Those of us who want to be, choose to be, pursue a closeness and an intimacy with Jesus. Those of us who have experienced the love of Jesus, who when the scriptures in the New Testament say, or John says, beloved, we know we are the beloved. They got it wrong. I get it wrong. So wrong. We get it wrong. It should cause us to sit up and take note. Because Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit is still working at us to get us all right. These disciples, they were not superstars in the least. They were not the Avengers of, of Jesus's whatever. They were not those people. They were me. And then the resurrection occurred and then the Holy Spirit came on them and then they began to look like the superstars. Cause us to take note. Learning from Jesus' enemies. They had the wit- we, have, we have the witness of Scripture. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit. The evidence is there. And yet there are times when the evidence is there and we are unwilling to give up our beliefs, unwilling to give up the choices that we've made, the lifestyle that we have, unwilling to give up our control, the power, stubbornly rejecting Jesus, plotting for ways to avoid. From the disciples, we learn about discomfort. We know about discomfort. We know about avoidance of what Jesus is saying to us, confronting us, exposing in us. From the disciples, we know about outrage because we get outraged about so many different things in and out of the church. And our outrage sometimes is legitimate, folks, because there's some crazy, wacko things happening out in the world. Shakespeare wrote about this. In Hamlet, as the players are doing the play to, ca- to trip up the king, the Queen Gertrude says, uh, you know, she's, she's there and she's listening to the one woman character in the play, that they're in the play, the play within the play. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. That's this moment, this outrage. They're protesting too much. This outrage, outrage is over the top. Why? Because it's fueled by their own avoidance. It's their own discomfort. And so, yeah, well, I can, I can control this, though. Not. And from the disciples, we know about the disciples' choice. And what may happen to us. Pray that it doesn't happen forever. Pray that we don't fall away and abandon Jesus. Pray that we don't go through another series of times when we deny him. And by all means, praying that we never betray him.
I think we're looking at ourselves here. <laughs> let, me, let me back off. That's a little bit aggressive. I look at this and I'm looking at myself. Now if you want to start a movement to get me removed here from the church, you'll be in great shape. <laughs> I, just think, I, th- I just think it's us. And I think it's what God continues to do in us to get us out from under this. To get us to face all the things that we have embraced that are wrong. To get us to embrace everything in Him that is right. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this moment in the Gospels. Moving from the first half of the week to the second half, to the passion of Christ. Father, if there is anything in me, if there is anything in us that is wrong, we're asking you, I'm asking you, to expose it, to confront it, to be persistent until I agree with you, until conviction comes into my life. And beyond that, till I repent and allow you the opportunity to get it out and root it out of me so that I can be all that you desire me to be, so that I can know the fullness of life that I'm missing now. Father, do this. Do this in all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.